0: We've been thinking a lot recently about elders. This morning, we were thinking about elders' role in teaching. L- last week, we looked at the distinction between those who are ordained and those aren't. Uh, and I hope you've seen why it is important that we we think about these things. Uh, but maybe it's left you thinking, "Well, well, what about me? What can I do as an ordinary Christian?" Because at the end of the day, the vast majority of people in any congregation won't become elders. But all of God's people have a message that we're to share with the world. And so as Paul's letter to the Colossians begins to draw to a close, he still has an important issue left to deal with. And that is, what can a group of ordinary Christians do to make sure that those around them hear about Jesus? Isn't that something that would be good for us to think about tonight? What can a group of ordinary Christians do to make sure that those around them hear about Jesus? It's a reminder that the great privileges that we saw in chapter 3 come with great responsibilities. It's a reminder that this new life in Christ that we have... Uh, that this letter talks about, that it's not to stop with us, it's not to stay within the confines of the, the family structures we were thinking about last Lord's Day evening, but we're to share this message with those around us. And so Paul tells us how, that we're to do this in two main ways. Uh, how are we to impact the world around us? Two main ways. We're to speak to God about people, and then we're to speak to people about God uh, not, not headings that are original to me, but I think they're helpful. We're to speak to God about people and then speak to people about God. Uh, and so in verses 2 to 4 we have our first point, speaking to God about people. It's getting to the time of year when we begin to look back on the year that's passed and look ahead to the new one. It's the time to start thinking about new Bible reading plans and things like that. Uh, some congregations also choose a, a motto for each year, a, a, a verse of the Bible that's going to be their motto as a congregation for the new year. Uh, back in his day Charles Spurgeon would ask an older minister to send him a, a motto each year and in January 1861 just as his congregation had begun a week of prayer he, he opened the year's envelope and found Colossians 4 verse 2. Uh, The older minister had known nothing about the week of prayer when he sent it. And so Spurgeon took it that he had been guided directly by God when he opened the envelope and read, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It would be a great text for for any congregation to take at the start of the new year. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer is a subject that we, we often feel guilty about when we come to think about it. We, we know it's important. Uh, we know it's important, but we also know that our own prayer lives fall far short. But I think that when Paul talks to the Colossians here, their overwhelming feeling here wouldn't be one of guilt, but of thankfulness. I think they would have had an overwhelming reaction of privilege and gratitude because the great Apostle Paul is asking them to pray for him. Remember that this is a group of relatively new Christians from Nowheresville, and yet Paul is holding out to them the opportunity of being involved in the frontline work of the gospel. The great Apostle Paul himself, who they have never met, says that they can help him by their prayers. What an encouragement to prayer that is. The word in verse 2 translated continues steadfastly. It's the same word used in Acts 1 14 where we read that the apostles and the woman and Jesus' mother and brothers were devoting themselves to prayer. It's used again at the end of Acts 2, where we read that the early church were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Uh, so, so it's not just about, about keeping going in praying, it's about being devoted to it. And one of the things that will help us to be more devoted to prayer is to realize just how much God delights to hear his children pray we're so excited aren't we when our children begin to speak uh, first it's just just one word uh, and then uh, they add a few more words and then they can say a whole sentence in one go and then they start putting sentences together and it's amazing we're, we're so delighted. Maybe outside of our own family, people can't understand what they're saying. Their, their speech isn't clear, but, but we can understand it and we are just so delighted. Well, that's a bit like what the Bible says God is like when we pray. Proverbs 15.8 says that the prayer of the upright is his delight. Spurgeon told his congregation, God takes more pleasure in your prayers than you do in his answers. think of of sometimes the the feeling of thankfulness we might have if we've prayed about something for a long time and God answers. But actually God takes more delight in, in our prayers than we do in his answers. He also delights it. Delights to hear us praying his word back to him. He wants us to hold his word up like a contract and say it says here that you're going to do this. Uh, Isaiah 62, 7 says, give God no rest until he establishes his church. So we're being invited, encouraged to pray for the work of the church. Knowing that it's something that God is more invested in than us. And at the end of verse 2, we're to do so with thanksgiving. Why pray with thanksgiving? Well, because God has answered our prayers before, hasn't he? Uh, even in, in our own congregation, when we, we came back after lockdown, we, we prayed that God would, God would give us a couple of new faces before the end of the year. And he's, he's more than done that. Spurgeon says that some Christians are so mournful when they come to God in prayer that it's as if they're about to try a great experiment on one who was exceedingly deaf and didn't like to give them good things. And so yes, to devote ourselves to prayer is a command, but it is also a privilege Yet at the same time, we must be watchful, we must be alert. Like the disciples, we must watch and pray that we don't fall into temptation. It's possibly a reference to Jesus' return, uh, being watchful. In light of Jesus' return, it doesn't mean that we, we, we sit around it and watch for it coming. Uh, we sit around it and just wait for Jesus to come back. Uh, but it means it should drive us to pray all the more urgently. All the more urgently. And if verse 2 is about prayer in general, verse 3 is specifically calling for prayer for the spread of the gospel. And in this, these insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate country town, as they've been called, have a vital role to play. Perhaps you wondered how relevant parts of last week's sermon were to you about marriage, children and work. But there could be no doubt about whether this verse is relevant to us. Because from the youngest to the oldest of us tonight, we can all pray. We can all pray. Pray also for us. But who is, asking, who is Paul asking for prayer for? Who is the us Well if we look on down to verse 12 uh, which we also read earlier uh, we see Epaphras mentioned he was the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians in the first place. He's with Paul. If we look back to the first verse of the letter we'll see that Timothy is with Paul as he writes. So Paul is asking for prayer for those whose task it is to preach the word Uh, and primarily as he As we see in verse 4 he's asking for prayer for himself he's asking for prayer for himself so clearly these three men are responsible for proclaiming god's word in a way that ordinary christians aren't as we'll see in verses 5 and 6 a little later on we all have a part to play but those who god has called and equipped to preach the word of the primary responsibility of spreading the gospel but if they're to do it then they need the prayers of God's people they need the prayers of God's people so do you pray for your minister I've no doubt that you do if the Colossians were to pray for Paul who, who they'd never met How much more should we pray for ministers who know us individually, who pray for us by name and who study God's word each week that that they might apply it to our lives? Do you pray for missionaries? Notice that Paul here, he's not asking the Colossians to to pray for the spread of the gospel uh, simply in Colossae. Uh, he's not asking uh, the Colossians just to focus on their own patch. He's praying for, for the work of the gospel far beyond where they are. So he wants them to have a big vision. So pray for your minister, pray for missionaries. But what are we to pray for for them? Well, Paul picks out two main things in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, that God would open a door for the word. And in verse 4, that God would make it clear, or that they would make it clear. So what does it mean to ask that God would open a door for the Word? Well, the Word is a message of the Bible. It's summed up in verse 3 as a mystery of Christ. Uh, That doesn't mean it's some secret, uh, but it's a message which was once hidden, but has now been made clear. And think where Paul is as he writes this. Uh, Paul is in prison and he's praying for something to open. But it's not the prison doors that he's asking that would open. His great concern is an open door for the Word of Christ, that, that instead of hitting a brick wall, uh, the Word would be implanted in receptive hearts. And what is it that will make the difference? Well, in light of these verses, we, we can't simply say, well, it's God's sovereignty. Uh, or at least God's sovereignty and our prayers are irrelevant to that. There is a clear link in verse 3 between the Colossians' prayers and the work of the gospel. If they pray, God may open a door for the word. But if they don't, maybe he won't. Like God could choose to work without our prayers. God, God doesn't need our prayers. We want to be very clear about that. But, but in his wisdom, this is the way that God has chosen for things to work. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask. If Paul's asking them to pray that God would open a door, if they don't pray, that door will stay closed. And to to flip that around, if God doesn't seem to be opening doors for us, is it because we're not praying enough that he would, both as individuals and collectively? We tend to apply these verses individually. We we probably tend to apply all verses individually. uh, but, But Paul may well have the whole church in mind. Sometimes we scratch our heads when we see churches that, that we would have big issues with growing at a rate that we're not. But could it be that they're praying more? The second thing that Paul asked for prayer for is in verse 4, that he would, would make the word clear or, or, or just simply reveal it. It's not talking here so much about his manner of getting it across, but just the fact that he would get across so pray, what we are being asked to do here is pray that your minister and missionaries would do what God has called them to do. That they wouldn't get diverted, uh, go down rabbit trails, that they wouldn't waste time, that they wouldn't miss opportunities, that they wouldn't lose confidence in the word. Because as Paul says at the end of the verse, this is how I ought to speak. As he says elsewhere, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Uh, and yes, that's to be done as clearly as possible. But, but the, the word a clear here, it's, it's maybe not that helpful. It's more just the sense of getting it across that they would do what they've been called to do. So our, our first responsibility that we've seen there is to speak to God about people. Uh, and that must come first, mustn't it? But then uh, the second of our two points this evening, we're also to speak to people about God. So, so secondly, speaking to people about God. There's a lot of confusion today about what the role of a minister is compared to the people in the pew. Is there even a distinction If there's a minister, is he to do all the evangelism while the people just pray for him? Or at the other extreme are the distinctions between minister and people, just outdated divisions that we've all moved beyond. Well, these verses are actually very helpful if you've ever wondered about a question like that. Because there is clearly a distinction here between the work of men like Paul and Epaphras uh, and then the ordinary people in the pew. As one commentator says, it's of great interest that the first duty of the Christians in Colossae was to open their mouths in prayer for the preachers of the gospel whom God had called to this work. It was not their first duty to preach themselves. The point is that there are two very different rules, or not very different but clearly different rules, being talked about here. Uh, There are those whose primary responsibility is to pray and those whose uh, primary responsibility is to preach. But at the same time in verses 5 and 6, the ordinary believer in the pew isn't to be passive. Someone has said that the difference here is between direct and indirect evangelism or or direct evangelism and responsive evangelism. Uh, That's probably a helpful way to think about it. A minister or or missionary's responsibility is for direct evangelism. They're to go out and make opportunities to speak the gospel. Whereas in general, the ordinary believer will more often be looking for opportunities for responsive evangelism. It talks talks here in the end of verse 6 about how you may answer each, each person so... Living in such a way that people will, will ask questions or being with people uh, so that w- when questions come up you can speak uh, it 's not, it's not a completely uh, completely clear cut distinction it doesn 't mean that, that, that ordinary Christians are, are only to speak about Jesus when people ask you direct questions if you can make opportunities for the gospel great but Paul simply recognizing here that different people have different gifts. Uh, and different callings. I think he's lifting unnecessary guilt from people who might think, well, I could never stand up uh, in front of people the way the Apostle Paul does. Yet at the same time, he's still emphasizing that every member has a responsibility to promote the gospel in how they live and speak. And so he says in verse 5 walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. And Paul is making a couple of assumptions there that we can't take for granted. Firstly, he's assuming that we'll want to reach outsiders with the gospel. The false teachers in Colossae seem to be bringing about a teaching that was only for the inner circle. It was about being on some sort of higher spiritual level than everyone else. And so they were just concerned about those who would be on the inner circle. But that's not just a Colossian problem. They wouldn't be the only people in church history who've become so concerned with those on the inside that they've started to forget about those on the outside Christian communities can easily become comfortable, uh, blinkered and safe. But here Paul assumes that healthy church members will have a desire to reach outsiders. He's also assuming that Christians will be in contact with outsiders, not that they'll withdraw into some sort of Christian bubble, which wasn't really an option for first century slaves anyway. And what are those outsiders to see? Well, they're to see a life which is different. There's a story told about Will Houghton, who was a minister in America about a hundred years ago. A man hired a private detective to follow him and report on his conduct. And when the detective reported that Houghton's life matched his preaching, the man was converted. So do the people who you spend time with who aren't Christians, do they notice the difference that the gospel makes in your life? Not just that you don't do certain things, not just that you don't say certain things, Though those are important, but has the gospel a positive influence on what you say and do? As someone has put it, the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behaviour of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. The reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behaviour of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. People who, who don't read the Bible themselves or listen to sermons, they can see your life they can see how you react in stressful situations will they see something different about you increasingly people around us aren't concerned about whether something's true or not all they care about is whether something works and actually the gospel is both yes it's true but it also works it does transform our lives. And so believers are called to demonstrate the power of the gospel in various contexts and situations. We are called to react in ways that would be impossible for us if the gospel hadn't been at work in our lives. So, how are we to live? Well, verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. In Colossians, that's a wisdom that comes from and focuses on God, not a a worldly wisdom. Back in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In 3 verse 16, he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And that includes the wisdom not to unnecessarily offend we can't change the fact that the gospel is offensive to the fallen man or woman. But that doesn't mean that our actions don't matter. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:32, "Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God." He's talking there primarily about eating and drinking with people who have tender consciences, but the principle still applies. Sometimes I wonder how many ministers discredit their ministries because of stuff they put on Facebook. Whether it's through pushing their, their political views or, or more recently going on and on about masks or vaccines or whatever. And then in the next post they're talking about the, the gospel or, or about abortion or something that is in a whole different category of importance. But doubtless people are are watching on thinking, oh well, if I want to be a Christian, there's all this other stuff I have to sign up for as well. Or if I want to be a Christian, well, I have to give up my Scottish nationalism because all these Christians seem to hate it so much. Or whatever. So as Christians, we should have a desire to reach outsiders, which will lead to us keeping our mouths shut about things that don't ultimately matter. Because our desire to reach them with the gospel should be stronger than our desire to convince them that Joe Biden is a Russian spy or whatever it may be. Our desire to reach them with the gospel should be stronger. So we're to want to reach outsiders. We're to want to do it so much that we will we will bite our tongues uh, rather than say things that would needlessly offend. There's also to be an urgency about it. It's not just a vague desire. Oh, it would be nice if, if more people came to believe in Jesus. But it's something we're always to be thinking about, always to be planning for. Just like a, a football manager is always thinking about his next game, always thinking about tactics and transfers, is lying in bed uh, at night planning, thinking ahead to the transfer window, uh, thinking ahead to the next game. So as Christians, we should always be thinking about how to get alongside opportunity unbelievers, how to create opportunities for the gospel. As the second half of verse 5 says, we're to make the best use of the time. If you've heard the phrase, redeeming the time, this is where it comes from. It's the language of the marketplace, snapping up deals. Uh, like, like people on, on Black Friday, they've, they've got one day to get all these, these deals. And so they're hunting for bargains. Or like someone hitting the shops at 6am on Boxing Day. Uh, There's an urgency about it. Of course as Christians we should always be be trying to redeem the time. Particularly if you're someone who who maybe doesn't have uh, as much on in terms of work commitments or pressing family responsibilities as others. Do you realise what an opportunity you have? You know, there are people in the church who could be invited round for dinner. In our own congregation in particular, there, there are so many people who are on their own. Uh, there's people uh, you could invite round every single week. There, there's people you can make meals for. There are people who can be visited. There are people who would appreciate a phone call. Uh, there are young families who would love someone to take the kids for an hour or, or offer to help out in other practical ways. So as Christians, we, we're always to be redeeming the time because it's not ours to fritter away. But Paul's talking specifically here about our witness to outsiders. So just because witnessing to unbelievers isn't your full-time job, it doesn't mean you're to be passive about it. But rather there's to be an urgency about it. So our lives are to be different. We're to be careful about what we say around unbelievers. We're to have an urgency as we look for opportunities. And we must also speak the gospel to them. Verse verse 6. It's not just about what we don't say, but it's also about what we do say. You've maybe heard the words dubiously attributed to St Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. But that's like saying, feed the hungry, if necessary, use food. As we've seen, how we live our lives is is so important. It's so important some Christians don't even think about the, the impact that their lives are having on the unbelievers around them. But Paul here seems to be envisaging that, that the most our lives will do is to stir up people to ask us questions or maybe to, to back up what, what we're already saying. So we should live in such a way that it stirs up questions. Why are you different? Why are you so cheerful all the time? Why do you grumble and complain as much as the rest of us? Why is church so important to you? Why would you choose to miss that in order to go to that? So living that way, it will raise opportunities. And when those opportunities come, Paul says in verse 6 that your speech is to be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Is that what Christians in the UK are known for? Or speech that is gracious the word here is simply grace it's the same word that's used for the grace of God and the two are, are closely related because the more our speech is affected by the grace of the gospel the more gracious our words will be and your words are to be seasoned with salt salt is used to give something flavor So, our words are to have a different flavor about them than all the other voices that bombard people today. Think of someone who comes to the church for the first time. Will they leave after the service, or maybe after a, a few weeks? Will they leave thinking, those people talk differently from other people I've been used to? Their priorities seem to be different. When well, they say, I felt a welcome here that I haven't felt elsewhere. I, I, I felt that people were genuinely interested in me. And people, people usually aren't like that. And if God's grace is affecting our speech, then at the end of verse 6, we will know how to answer each person. if you've talked to to unbelievers about the gospel for for any length of time there are questions that you'll get that you've had before. Uh, Many unbelievers' objections to the gospel are, are really predictable but we're not just to trot out an answer. Each person must be loved and respected as an individual. There's no advantage to winning the argument but losing the person. Each conversation with an unbeliever, is not an argument to be won, but a precious opportunity to speak to someone who will live forever. Each conversation with with an unbeliever, whether it's it's someone we we know uh, and we'll, we'll see again, or whether it's someone we may only ever see once, it is a precious opportunity to speak to someone who will live forever. And so tonight we, we've looked at a part of God's word that's relevant to absolutely all of us. These five verses cover the responsibilities of every Christian. We don't have the option of keeping the gospel to ourselves, not if we want to obey God. But maybe as you sat here tonight, you don't know what it is to have a desire to reach those around you with the gospel you're not that bothered whether your friends or family believe this message or or not maybe you go to church they don't but the fact that they don't doesn't really bother you Uh, you're you're not excited about the, the prospect of lives of men and women in this community being changed by the gospel if so could it be that your life hasn't actually been transformed by the gospel that for all your association with church, you haven't yet come to know God as the perfect father who loves to hear his children come to him through Jesus Christ. That you haven't yet seen how terrible a thing it is to be cut off from your creator. That you don't actually have any first-hand experience of a message that is so important that a man lying in prison was more concerned that the gospel would spread than whether he got out of prison or not, that even though you're sitting here tonight, you're actually still one of those Paul calls outsiders. I'm trying to think of of a an analogy for for Paul and how his his big concern it's not about prison get, getting out. It's not even, as he says elsewhere, about whether he lives or dies. It's just about whether the gospel would spread. Imagine one of us got got COVID and we were in in hospital. And it was giving us opportunities to, to speak about the gospel. Would we be more concerned about whether people were saved through what happened than whether we got better? That's the sort of thing Paul is talking about. You know, the idea of being in prison is not very relevant uh, to us, but that's maybe one that comes home a bit more. How important is the gospel to us? Or are we interested in self-preservation at all costs? Maybe you look at the lives of Christians, you know, and at times you're not that convinced whether they're much different well, if so, then, then look past our own weak efforts. Instead, look to the one who lived the perfect life that we feel to live and that you have failed to live as well and pray that God will open the door of your heart because this is the most important message you could ever hear and it's the only message that can bring answers and hope in a world of increasing uncertainty. Amen. The message we've been entrusted with is one of life or death it is life or death uh, we're not we're not playing at church this is life or death uh, and we see that clearly in the words of psalm 49 psalm 49 verses 5 to 10 starting on page 98 verse 5 soul's redemption costly is money never could buy this that from death you will be free and decay will never see. In verse 7, so many people around us are caught up with their their houses, uh, their toys, their gadgets. But if they don't trust in Christ, their abundance in this life will just make them more guilty. But in verse 10, we close by singing of our hope. A saviour so great that he defeated death itself what a message we have to bring to the world. And may God give us a greater urgency to go about it. Psalm 49, 5-10, the tune is Hendon 234. We'll stand and sing praise.